We're blessed, are we not? Because anyone that's been in my church for the last several years, you remember I had a, uh, one of my favorite coaches for a football team had this saying, and he said this. He asked the question, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Few of you remember that. So I'm going to try it again, but just think about it. Who really has it better than you? Who really has it better than you? I mean, you have a God who created you that died on the cross for your sins and rose again so that you could have his victory. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Nobody. Man, we are so blessed. As a, as a human race, we're blessed at Osmond Neighborhood Church. I am blessed to call you my family. Uh, this is the year of family. It's kind of the word that God gave me for this year. And what a blessing it is to be part of this family. Um, I know there's family members that have your biological family members and you're out of town and you're coming and visiting us today. And I just, I just welcome you, man. It's so good for you to be here. Um, you belong here for today, right? And uh, you are going to get a good word from the Lord because you're not going to hear just from me. My prayer has been this week is that all of us get to hear something that God is saying to us. Uh, scripture makes it clear. Jesus quoted this even to the devil. He says that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, meaning that I don't live by just written words. I live by what God is breathing on in these words. God is breathing life through this. This is a living book. And I could just try to find any scripture I wanted to and God could breathe on it. But I love, I have the privilege of every week discovering what God wants to say on Sunday morning. And so I had a joy reading all the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Easter Sunday. And um, really quick, not because you want to be bored and not that you want to go to a history class, um, but I went to Bible college and there was this, I took a class called the Historicity, historicity of Christ. Um, big words and there was all this, you know, the deity of Christ, and all these things that to me, it was good to know for theology and basis of things. But at the end of the day, I just want relationship with Jesus. I just, I, I don't want information. I want communion. I want fellowship. I want intimacy. And so that's my heart. When I give messages, I could try to bore you with a whole bunch of information, but my prayer is that doesn't happen. My prayer is that something that is alive in me comes out of me and gets on you. That the same joy I have in serving Christ gets on you. The same peace, oh, that rules and reigns in my heart that I can go through life, not tossed to and fro by every wind, but I have an anchor for my soul. I have Christ as an anchor for my soul. I want to impart that to you. I want you to have the same joy I have in following Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at the story. We're going to look at the gospel of Mark. So if you want, you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Um, we're going to read the, the Easter story in that gospel, but just really quick, giving you some history, some context. All four gospels, um, write about Jesus' resurrection. Um, again, this might not be it for everybody, but just so you know, I love this. I love that we have four accounts of Jesus' life. That there's, there's the history of Moses, we get one book about that, right? We get the history of the story of Jonah, we get one book about that. But Jesus, we get four stories, all telling from different perspectives. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector. He was a Jew. And so he was writing primarily to Jews and he was showing that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah. So that's kind of his, his lens that he's looking at when he's writing his story about Jesus. Um, Matthew, Mark, that's one we're gonna read from today. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was really good friends with Peter. So we kind of consider this Peter's gospel. Even though Peter didn't write um, a gospel, he wrote some letters later on. This is kind of like Peter's account. And um, really quick Sunday school trivia that probably 99% of you don't care, but geeks like me that love Bible trivia. Scholars believe that in the story of Mark, we only find this one story about when Jesus was being arrested in the garden. Mark records that there was a man that was grabbed and his cloak came off him and he ran away naked in the garden. Mark's the only one that records that, so scholars believe actually that might have been Mark. Even though he wasn't one of the 12 <laughs> disciples, that was probably Mark. Um, and so he's letting everybody go, hey, that guy that was streaking to the garden, that was me, right? Um, so that's Mark. Scott, we're going to read from the story of Mark, and he likes to keep things concise. Um, I don't know, do they still have cliff notes? I don't think my kids even know what cliff notes are. But when I was in high school, cliff notes, if you were assigned to read a real big book in school and you didn't have time to read the whole book, you could get the cliff notes and it just told you really quick what the story was about. So Mark is kind of like the cliff notes of all the gospels. He's the shortest, only 16 chapters compared to like 28 chapters. And he just gets to the point. And so we're gonna get to the point this morning. We're gonna read the whole resurrection story. Um, more history, maybe some of you don't care about. I went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, some of you might know Sunday School Trivia. He's considered a a doctor, maybe not just a medical doctor, but a well-educated man, just like we have doctors in different professions. You can get your doctorate in different things. And so he was actually, 
he was actually probably hired by Theophilus, this rich man, to say, hey, tell me this whole story of Jesus. I keep hearing it, but can you like record it all and put it together so I actually know what's going on about this whole Christian faith? So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the story of Acts. And so he writes both of these things. And so he's kind of like this doctor, and he writes more from a historicity. He wants the facts. He wants the information. So he writes the longest. His gospel is by far the longest. Um, and so that's Luke. And then you have John, right? And John is, as you heard me last Sunday, he beats to a different drum. He is the beloved disciple. So he's one of the 12. And he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He talks about himself like that all throughout the gospel. I'm the one that Jesus loved. And the story of the resurrection of Christ, he makes sure that everyone knows he outruns Peter. If you read the story, he's like, I outrun Peter. I got there first. He makes sure, even though Peter's the head of the church, I'm faster than him. John makes sure to record all these important details for us. Um, but John, he really wants the love. He really, he's kind of more the artisan. He's the more the, in touch with his feelings. He's the one that was laying on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper, right? He's the one that was just intimate with Jesus. And so actually, um, that's my favorite gospel. I like all of them, but John is my favorite gospel. That's where you get John 3.16, the most famous, right, verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So that's what we're talking about this morning. And even though I love John, we're going to read Mark, we're gonna read Mark. And I'm gonna tell you why. Actually, I'll jump ahead of myself. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, he appears to his disciples on Resurrection Sunday. But if you read all the gospels, they all four record that the women saw Jesus first. The disciples were the last ones. At the very end of Resurrection Sunday, the 11 disciples, because Judas was no longer there, um, the 11 were the last ones. They record that Matthew says that the women saw him. John says it was just Mary Magdalene. Um, Mark records that it was the women. And then Luke actually gives this long story of the two on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to these two, and he talks to them for hours as they're walking, leaving Jerusalem, going all the way there. And it says, as it becomes afternoon, evening, he stays with them, and they run all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. And so that evening, Jesus finally shows up, after he's already showed up a couple times, to his disciples. Then, if you keep reading the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, you find out that Jesus, for 40 days, after Resurrection Sunday, for 40 days, Jesus keeps popping up. He keeps appearing to different people at different times. If you read, um, we get an extra story in John's gospel, John chapter 21. It's not just Easter Sunday, but we don't know. It's, it's several days later. Actually, he tells us about Thomas eight days later. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared on Easter Sunday. And Thomas is like, I don't believe unless I put my finger in his you know, side, in his hands, I don't believe. And then eight days later, Jesus appears again to his disciples. So we know that's eight days. He records that. After that, we don't know how long, maybe 20 days he appears in Galilee, and they're fishing. You guys remember that story? They're fishing, and they're, he's like, hey, did you catch anything? And they're like, no, we didn't catch anything. Throw your nets on the other side. You guys remember the story? So Jesus, he appears. This is weeks after Easter Sunday. For 40 days, he appears. Finally, on the 40th day, he ascends. He gives the great commission, and he goes up in the clouds on the Mount of Olives. You guys remember some of your Sunday school trivia? And then he doesn't appear anymore, because then 10 days later, Pentecost. Okay, I'll stop with the whole history. All right, so I wanted to give you that context because everything that's recorded about what Jesus says in red letters after his crucifixion, I want to share with you as an Easter sermon. In fact, I would title this morning's message as not Ryan's Easter sermon. This is Jesus' Easter sermon. This is what he tells his disciples. He speaks to Mary. He speaks to the two on the road to Emmaus. But actually, if you combine all the red letters of what he says to his disciples, this is what I want to make a message not just to find the history of what Jesus, I don't want to just read through the Gospels to find out what did Jesus tell his 12 disciples. No, what is he saying to you today? This is an Easter message for you today. I love that everything when Jesus speaks, he wasn't just speaking to his day. When Jesus was praying in the garden, it says he wasn't even just praying for his own disciples. He's praying for those that will one day believe, meaning you and I. He had this mindset that he knows that 2,000 years later, there's going to be an Osmaver church. And on 2023, there's going to be people that come to that church. And they're going to need to hear what I have to say on my Easter morning message, right? So he's speaking to you this morning. So let's read Mark. We'll get the whole context, read the whole story. Then we'll go back and just kind of do the sermon. So let me turn there, Mark. Chapter 16, let's just read the whole chapter. You guys ready? Verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, 
who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, at the very end of Easter Sunday, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. All right, so you got the resurrection story and 40 days after all in cliff notes, all in one chapter. Thank you, Mark. But really what I want to point out there is that Jesus had a message for his 11 disciples that was different maybe from everyone else. He was speaking to those that would consider or label themselves as followers of Jesus. And I'm just going to assume that most of you that came to church this morning, you would associate yourself as a follower of Jesus that you follow Jesus. So Jesus has a message to his followers this morning. And so if we look, starting in verse, I'm gonna narrow it down instead of the whole chapter. We'll go to verse 14. So Mark 16, 14. So what does it say? Later, at the end of the day, he appeared to 11 as he sat at the table. And what does it say that he says first? He rebuked their unbelief. So this is a fun, popular Easter Sunday morning message. The very first thing Jesus tells his followers is, I'm here to correct you. What you currently are thinking is misplaced. What you currently are feeling is the wrong feelings you should be feeling. Your current theology is wrong. Well, that's a fun Easter morning message. That's the one I wanted to preach when God was sharing with me when we're gonna preach. I'm like, God, are you sure that's the message? He's like, well, that's what I preached to my disciples. So I'm like, all right, we're preaching what you preach, Jesus. If I get to half points, we don't know, we'll see. But my first one would be, he corrected them. The first thing Jesus did is he corrects those whom he loves. If you want to look in the Proverbs, you want to look in Hebrews, I can point out actually lots of verses in the Bible. It says that God disciplines those whom he loves. He corrects the child or the son that he finds joy in. He makes sure that he corrects. So there's something about being a follower of Jesus that we should have this correction in our life continually. See, I don't know about you, but I, I thought that once I acknowledged I was a sinner and that I recognized that Jesus was my savior, that he forgave me of all my sins, which is true, that I, maybe I don't need his correction anymore. But wait a second. His 11 disciples, were they not followers of Jesus? They'd followed him for three years. And yet, actually, if you go back and read the gospels, it seems like Jesus corrects his disciples quite a bit. And I, this word corrects, I, I use the word corrects because I'm, I'm a little softer than Jesus, I think. I tend to be like a little more gentle than he is. But actually, let me find it. I looked it up in the Greek. Let's see if I can find it. I was going to put the very first point was going to be, he carefully corrects. <laughs> and then I looked up in Greek what that word is. It's on I did so. It means rebuked, which it has in New King James reprimanded, reproached, condemned, scolded. 
wow, the very first thing out of the resurrection Lord's mouth was the followers is I'm gonna, I'm here to reprimand you. I'm alive to correct you. You have things that are wrong and it's my job to point them out. Wow, that sounds enjoyable. <laughs> but this is what you sign up for. If you just sing your heart out to Jesus that he is risen and that you, he is the Lord of your life, then you signed up for his reprimands, for his rebukes. As long as you are a follower of Jesus, you will continually have the discipline of the Lord. He will continually tell you where you're wrong. Can I say it this way? If you've been following the Lord for a while and you think back to yesterday, last week, the last couple weeks, and you can't actually give me a specific time the Lord corrected you on something, I'm just going to be as bold as Jesus. I question the depth of your relationship with Jesus. Sounds very harsh on an Easter Sunday morning, but I just want to be real with you. I don't want to give you nice fluffy words. I want to share you the words of Jesus to his disciples on Easter Sunday morning. He corrects. It's his job to show you where you're wrong. I don't like being shown where I'm wrong. I don't know about you. When I got married, I thought she was there to be my partner and to come alongside and help me and be my assistant to help my life be easier. That's what I thought I signed up for in marriage. But what I also signed up is for someone to live with me 24-7 and see all my faults and failures and flaws. And praise God, she's a good woman of God that she does it graciously most of the time, right? Ryan. Do you see how you're acting in front of your children? Do you want your children to act the same way? Oh, that's a good point. Okay, okay, let's, let's maybe change that attitude, right? I praise God for that. If you ask my kids, I tend to be the one that's a little more carefully corrects my kids. My wife tends to be the one that's a little more firm. And I love that because you need that in raising kids. But my kids will tell you, even growing up, I got three boys in one bedroom. Oh my goodness. Talk about when you open the door in the morning, the wonderful smell that wafts out of that room. <laughs> Whew. But before they go to bed at night, putting these three boys at a young age, they've been sharing ever since the, Ezra was born. They were sharing the same room. Putting boys to bed is not always a one-time job. <laughs> and the first time I would come in, I would be gentle and kind. And God's word says that it's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. So I just would be so kind and expect my kids to repent. And it was not my kindness that got them to stop misbehaving. At some point, they needed a fierce reprimand from their father. They needed to know that dad was doing business. That I would come in the third time like, boys, I've had enough. The next time I come in here, someone's getting spanked. I don't care who it is. If I hear a voice, I'm picking one of you and you're getting spanked. <laughs> right? There's a difference between just a, a gentle correction and a harsh reprimand. I remember when I was still the youth pastor, I would be invited every once in a while to preach on a Sunday morning. And sometimes I made people a little scared the way I preached because I, I wasn't as refined as maybe a, a, a senior pastor is supposed to be. But I shared one time that, man, sometimes Jesus, he just slaps me in the face. And I remember when I did that, I had a lot of elderly people come to me, Ryan, you really shouldn't say that. I mean, there's people that are young in the Lord and they're gonna take that the wrong way. And I was like, okay. And then I thought about it like, no. That's how he deals with me sometimes. <laughs> I praise God most of the time he's gentle with me. But sometimes he's not gentle with Ryan. Sometimes he blasts me. And I feel like a fool. And I have to humbly go to my kids that are, I'm supposed to be the authority in the room. And I have to go to my kids and I have to say, hey guys, family meeting, dad was a fool today. And I was wrong. The way I treated you, what I said was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Where did that come from? That came from me having a relationship with Jesus and submitting to his correction. I'm telling you, if you want a vital, healthy, ongoing relationship with Jesus, you've got to invite the correction of him. You've got to invite the harsh rebuke of Jesus. And I don't have time to go through all of it really quick. He rebukes some things. He rebukes their, their unbelief. Like I said, when he comes to Thomas eight days later, these are the very words of Jesus. Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believe. I'm going to say there's actually 
power in those words today. If I take Thomas's word out, I could start going around the room. I could just start saying, I don't know, pick on someone, right? I'll just pick a name that comes by. Josh, stop being unbelieving, but believe. Gary, stop being unbelieving, but believe. Gwen, start, stop being unbelieving, but believe. Put your name in there. Jesus is telling you, stop doubting him. Stop wandering in your trust in him. That he defeated sin, death, and the grave, and you doubt his ability to work these things out in your life? That's a foolish thought to have in your life. And he wants to reprimand you. Your unbelief is not okay. He's saying it to Ryan this morning. Ryan, your unbelief, your doubts, your, your not full trust in me is not okay. Think about it. Even Peter, the only other human being other than Jesus to walk on water, and we give him all this credit, and he begins, to, he gets out of the boat, and he starts walking on water, and then he starts to sink. Does Jesus kindly say, oh, Peter, man, you did such a good job. Like he started praising him for all the good things he did first. And they said, but you know what? You could have done this a little bit better. No, what did he do? Peter, what's wrong with you? You have such little faith. And I'm like, wait, Jesus. Like he walked on water. Like throw him a little credit. Like throw him a bone. Like Peter did something great here. And yet Jesus was not afraid to reprimand Peter. I'm telling you, Jesus on Resurrection Sunday had no fear to reprimand his church. He's not shrinking back from reprimanding you this morning. The Holy Spirit, it says his job is to convict the world of sin. And I used to read that like, yeah, go get him, Holy Spirit. Go get that world out there. (laughs) But it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict Ryan of sin. He guides me, leads me into all truth. He reminds me of the things that Jesus said. He actually helps me not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. The Holy Spirit says, Ryan, what are you thinking right now? Why is that, why are you allowing that thought to stay there? The enemy may have put a thought in your mind, but you're entertaining it, and that's a sin, Ryan. You've heard this maybe before. You cannot afford to think a thought in your mind that God's not thinking. The way you think about yourself, can I tell you, it needs to change. The way that Ryan thinks about myself, I was actually very kindly reprimanded this morning in some leadership prayer. Too often I view Ryan a different way than God views me. And I need to have the mind of Christ I need to see myself the way God sees me. I need to think about myself the way God thinks about me. You need to think about yourself the way God thinks about you. Go a step further. You need to think about others the way God thinks about them. So he's reprimanding their disbelief, but really he goes past it and he says, it's your fears. Every time Jesus appeared, it says that every time he appeared for these 40 days, he kept having to say, Peace, peace, hold on, don't freak out. Because like a ghost, he would just walk through the walls and appear. And they were freaked out. They thought they were gonna be arrested next. Jesus was arrested and then tortured to death. And they thought they were next. And he kept saying, you guys are afraid. And it's not okay to be afraid. I like this statement. Fear is faith in the wrong God. Anytime I have fear, it's actually an idol. Anything that gets between me and my trust of God is an idol. I wouldn't wouldn't consider that I bow down and I worship and I sacrifice to all these fears. No, but anything that gets between me and God and my full devotion to him and trusting him wholeheartedly, it's an idol. God is saying this morning, he wants to deal with fears. Any fear you have that's not a fear of God, it's an idol. And he wants to reprimand us, yes, in a loving way, but he's saying it's not okay to doubt him. It's not okay to have fears. Actually, can I go a step further? This goes crazy. Jesus is reprimanding their sadness. Think about this for a second. This is the most logical, reasonable time to be sad in any human's life. Their best friend, their rabbi, their master, they've been following for three years. They just watched two days ago tortured to death. 
they are crying and weeping that they lost Jesus. And Jesus shows up and the first thing he does, he says, why are you sad? Actually, I can, I can read it to you because it wasn't in Mark, but it says in the other gospels, when he appears to the women, actually, I did a whole, I love this, is actually my favorite. I wanted to re-preach this one, but God's like, no, right? The very first red letter in the Bible of the resurrected Lord is in Matthew because that's the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, when he shows and he appears himself to the women, it's a one word with an exclamation point. Rejoice! The women are weeping and he's reprimanding them saying, you should be doing the opposite. Wait a second. Jesus has the audacity to tell people that have every reason to be sad, you shouldn't be sad. Let that sink in for a second. Too often, I read the scriptures and I get it. There's, you've got to hear this with the Holy Spirit. I'm praying that we have spiritual ears to hear this. Because scripture says, yes, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Did Jesus weep? Yes, shortest Bible verse, right? In John's gospel, when he shows up, Lazarus is dead, and he sees Mary and Martha, and it says, Jesus wept. All right. Was Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Yes. Was Jesus labeled even in Isaiah as a suffering servant? Yes. Let me ask you this. On the other side of the cross, is Jesus still a suffering servant? Is Jesus currently a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? No. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He endured the cross, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Is he still enduring the cross? No. He's obtained his joy. So get this picture. In the natural, everything within this pastor's heart that's compassionate and gentle, I want to weep with those who weep. When I see someone who's sad and they have every reason to be sad, in the natural, my eyes looking in the natural, I'm saying, I should be weeping with them. I should be sad with them. But there are times when Jesus is saying, that is the wrong response. He wants to rebuke sadness. On Easter morning, he's saying, if you get this, would there be something wrong if you showed up to a wedding and the groom was waiting at the altar and the bride was about to come around the corner, and then like, you could see, that's one of my favorite things to do, right, is watch the groom. He's like, he's nervous, but he's excited, and as soon as that bride comes around the corner, he sees it, it's like, oh, his eyes light up, like there's my beautiful bride, right? Everyone loves seeing the groom, watching the groom as the bride comes to the room. But it would be weird to see a groom so excited and to see a bride walk in with her head to her chest, slowly walking, And that's what Jesus is addressing. He's saying the church looks like a bride walking down the aisle that's full of shame and guilt and sorrow. That everything the world is doing has caused you to be oppressed and you're downcast. And he's saying, would you learn to speak like David? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God and bless the Lord, O my soul. He's a shield about us. He's the glory and he's the lifter of our heads. And he's saying on Resurrection Sunday, it's not okay to be sad. The bride of Christ is not supposed to be gloomy. He's returning for a beautiful, radiant, glorious bride. And there's no room for us to be sad. He's saying on the very first day of the resurrection, the other side of the cross, the very first day of the other side of the cross, he's saying it's time to rejoice. And that declaration has not changed for 2,000 years. It does not matter who's the president who's the governor, who's your boss. It doesn't matter if your wife has left you. It doesn't matter if you have a sickness. It doesn't matter what excuse or reason you have to be sad. Jesus' word to you this morning is rejoice. Why are you sad? Why are you so downcast? He told it to women. He told it to Mary. He told it to the two on the road to, uh, to uh, Emmaus. He said it to his disciples. What's wrong with you? Jesus is looking in the kingdom. And he's like, this is a time to rejoice. This is a time to bring heaven on earth. Which brings me to our next point. So he reprimands them, corrects them. The next thing, right? That was verse 14, verse 15 and 16. 
And then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You'll find this at the end of Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You guys know this, right? He's commissioning them or he's challenging them. After he corrects them, he challenges them. This is Jesus' Easter Sunday morning sermon to you. He wants to call you to another level. He's saying it's time to go higher. You've maybe heard this in church before. Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You have been called by Jesus. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, he's got a plan for your life. He wants to send you out to do things, to accomplish things, to build his kingdom. Your goal is not just to cling to him for salvation and get a ticket to heaven. He's saying, all right, you're saved. Now I've got a job for you. I'm commissioning you. I am sending you out. In fact, uh, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, just as the father has sent me, I send you. So hear this. He's challenging you to be sent just as he has sent. Again, if you want to, Maybe you don't want all the history of this, but the, the Greek where he says send, when Jesus says, I have been sent by my father and now I send you, the Greek word is apostolon. I've been apostled to apostle you. And if you were here at our church last year, we, uh, we had a uh, Sunday night class where we talked a little bit about this. This Greek word apostle comes from the Greeks and then the Romans were the next empire. If you guys remember your history, right? The Greek empire, the Roman empire came after them. And the Roman empire adopted this idea of apostles. And the idea was the Roman empire was ruling the whole world. And what they did is they kept expanding and they would have these wars and these battles and they would defeat this new conquered land, these barbarians, right? They were, you know... um, Cannibals, and they didn't have any civilization. They didn't have any like structure. They had no government. They were just these rough and tough cannibals, right? And the Roman civilized world would come and conquer them, and they would find that after they conquered them, they would leave and go to another land. They would just go right back to being barbarians. They said, "What we need to do is," Caesar said, "What we need to do is we need to get some people that know how Rome works, and we need to send apostles. So let's take a governor." who knows the politics. Let's take a general who knows military and I can dispatch some soldiers and bring some order to that. Let's bring um, an artisan that knows beauty and knows how to make things you know, beautiful. Let's take uh, an engineer that knows how to make roads and everything that we're doing in Rome, let's now take this conquered land and let's make it look like Rome. Let's make it feel, look, taste, smell, operate just like Rome so that years to come, if the emperor decided to leave Rome, and the emperor decided to travel and go visit this new conquered land, he would feel just like he's at home. Because all the roads would look the same as Rome. All the people would be wearing the same clothes. All the artistry would be the same. The government would be the same. The law and order would be the same. Are you getting the analogy here? Jesus is saying, just as I was sent from my father, I was sent from heaven to earth. I'm sending you on earth. Where he taught them the prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have been commissioned to make earth look just like heaven. You are not praying, God, I can't wait till I get out of this earth so I get to heaven one day. That's the wrong prayer. That's the wrong mindset. Jesus is preaching this Easter message. He's saying, I'm not coming just to make you saved, just to put your name in the Lamb Book of Life. I'm coming because I have a plan and I have a kingdom and I want my kingdom to come from heaven and to be established on earth. And it can only happen unless I have generals, unless I have artisans, unless I have you being those that know what heaven is like. Do you know what heaven is like? Do you know what Jesus' kingdom is like? You've got to know it so that you can establish it. He is sending you out. Oh man, I wish... I have the privilege on Sunday morning to stand behind a pulpit and to preach the gospel. Praise God, what a huge privilege that is. But on Mondays, when I'm in the grocery store behind a shopping cart, am I preaching the gospel? Not everyone in here is called to be a pastor. Not everyone in here is called to full-time ministry. But you're all called to preach the gospel. 
every single one of you is called. Can I put it this way? And I'm pointing my finger here more than you. You have a higher calling in your life than you're currently living. That's pointing right here at this pastor too. If you are going to work and doing the same thing, another day, another dollar, and life is monotonous, can I tell you, you're not hearing the challenge and the commission and the calling of Jesus Christ in your life. I said it this way, it's kind of harsh. If you can't remember the last time you were disciplined by the Lord, I question your intimacy with Jesus. Can I say it this way? If you don't have something that you're planning to do in the next weeks and months in your life that scares you because it requires more faith than you currently have, can I tell you, you're not living out the full calling God has for your life. This is a bold Jesus being bold on Easter Sunday morning saying, I'm calling you higher. I'm not waiting till you get equipped for you to walk this out. No, as you begin to walk it out, I'll equip you. It takes faith to do things that you're not equipped to do. I could give you testimony after testimony. I've shared with you when I became the pastor of this church, I lined up all the things. God, I'm not qualified this way. I'm not prepared this way. I'm not good. I'm an, I'm an introvert. I don't speak well in front of people. I don't like, I gave God all kinds of reasons why logically I should not be a lead pastor. And God heard all those things and says, I don't care, Ryan. It sounds like excuse and whining and whining and whining. I've called you to do something that I want you to do. Are you going to pray the same prayer Jesus prayed? Not my will, your will be done. There's a cup that you are to drink that you don't want to drink. Are you willing to drink it? Jesus this morning is saying, I did it. I drank my father's cup. I didn't feel like doing it, but I obeyed. Jesus is being harsh this morning. He's commissioning you. He's calling you. He consistently challenges. And I love this last one. All right. I get to do kind of three points this morning. We'll see. So that was verse 16. Now we go into verse 17. This is still red letters, right? Jesus' Easter morning message. And these signs will follow those who believe. Wait a second. These signs will follow the 12 disciples? Are you someone who believes? So Jesus in red letters on Easter Sunday morning is preaching to you as a follower, as a believer, these signs are to follow you. All right, now let's read them. It's going to be nice and easy, right? These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. <laughs> this is an easy one to preach. When's the last time Ryan cast out a demon? When's the last time Ryan had the enemy like a serpent in front of me, attacking me, or poisonous things were being spoken in my life, and they did not hurt me or affect me in any way? When's the last time I laid hands on someone that was sick, and I saw a miracle, I saw them healed? Because it says that these signs will follow those who believe. So first he corrects his disciples, then he challenges them. Now he's saying, I'm going to confirm your belief and you're following me with these signs. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. As you read the other gospels, what does he say, right? Luke, who wrote Acts, he says this. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Another gospel writer says it this way. You will be endued with power from on high. John puts it this way. He shows up on Easter Sunday morning. He rebukes them. And then he says this. Jesus says this to his disciples. Just as I've been sent, that was John chapter 20, verse 21, 22, he says this. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He rebukes them. He challenges them. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the full gospel. If you try to condense everything Jesus is saying to the church still today, he's saying, you need to repent. You need to be corrected. 
You also need to live to a higher standard. You need to be challenged. But thirdly, you need to be filled with my spirit. You cannot do what I'm calling you to do in your own strength. You cannot do it in your own intellect. You can't do it with your current resources. What I'm calling you to do, it requires a filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, this is a challenging word. Does this mean that if you've never cast out a demon, you're not going to heaven? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying this morning, if you've never had a desire or that scares you, which it did for me growing up in this church, I remember hearing about demons and I was like, as a kid, demons, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, I don't even want to see one. I don't want to talk to one. I don't, I don't want to, I, like, no, 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 no. I don't want to believe they exist, right? That's how I lived a lot of my life early on as a Christian. But this is what Jesus is saying. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail. He's saying the church is supposed to push back the kingdom of darkness. It's not that the church is supposed to huddle in a corner and just hold on for dear life until he returns. He's saying, no, go increase my kingdom. The increase of my government, there shall be no end. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now I send you. I give you my authority. I give you my spirit. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave lives and dwells in you. He's saying, you are supposed to do miracles. You are supposed to do signs and wonders. It is supposed to be an awe and a wonder. When people look at your life, they should say, wow, that's incredible. It's not my goal to convince people to believe like I believe. It's not my goal to convince people to think like I think. My goal is to present Jesus to people. My goal is to present the love of Jesus, but also the power. I love when Paul goes through his, his epistles. In some places where he showed up in a town, he would just bring a lot of eloquent words and he would bring doctrine, he'd bring theology. He'd bring up all the Old Testament prophecies and point to Jesus. And he's like, wow, this is heavy, deep stuff. Other times in a Greek city, they didn't know anything about the Old Testament. And so he just would perform miracles. So are we supposed to just perform miracles? Or are we supposed to just know God's word? Yes, right, we're supposed to do it all. I'm not saying that's all you should go seek is just signs and wonders. No, we should seek to know God's word too. But they go together. Too often the church, and I'm pointing at myself, Ryan, I went to Bible college. I got so full of knowledge that somehow in puffing myself up with knowledge, I limited the power of God. I want a healthy dose of both. I want my feet firmly in both stirrups that when it comes time, I'm so in tune with the Holy Spirit that when I talk to someone, I know when they just need scripture, they just need the word of God. They need to be bathed and cleansed with God's word. And sometimes, man, they've got a demon. And it doesn't matter. I can argue scripture with them all day long and that's never gonna do anything for them. They need that demon cast out. And I have the authority to say, all right, demon, out of here. I know this seems strange to some of you in the room, but I don't know, I, I can't water down Jesus' Easter Sunday morning message. This is what he chose to record of what he told his disciples. So if you don't like it, don't point at the pastor. Point at Jesus, point at the Holy Spirit who wrote it down in, in the word for us. Do these signs follow you? Are you so filled with the Spirit that it's obvious All right, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna shift and not just try to preach more. Daniel, you can come on up. Um, we always end service with a, a song and we're gonna do that in a second. But before we do that, I just wanna give an invitation because my prayer has been that I didn't just give information up here that somehow the Holy Spirit was speaking to individual hearts. We're not just reading about what Jesus told his disciples 2,000 years ago. I know there's people moving on up here and I know we're thinking about the service ending, but can I have you look at me real quick? Everyone just look in my eyes. On this Easter morning, are you inviting Jesus to correct you? Are you willing to let Jesus show you where you are wrong? 
Are you humble enough to let the king of glory point out to you that something needs to change? Are you willing to accept that your theology is not 100% accurate? The lead pastor of the church, I'm claiming that over myself. My theology is not 100% accurate. I went to Bible college and I confess, I've got a lot to learn. Jesus was talking to his followers. I feel like there's three things. You have an opportunity to respond to three things. Where you need to be corrected, where you need to be challenged. I'm just gonna say, I'm praying as I'm saying this, that the Holy Spirit is calling you to a higher level. Some of you, I'm just gonna be bold. Some of you actually are being called by God into ministry. And ministry is gonna look different. I was bragging on Daniel, who's got four young kids, full-time job as, as a teacher, and yet he's in full-time ministry. Youth pastor's got four young kids, full-time job, and he's a youth pastor. This pastor for eight years, right? It can look different. Some of you are called into ministry, and can I say it this way? There's at least an individual here. When I was praying this week, the Holy Spirit wants to burden you for your manager at work. There's someone you, someone in here that you've got a manager that's not easy to get along with, that's not saved. And the Holy Spirit wants to give you a holy conviction for that person, to love them, to speak truth, to be kind, to win them for God's kingdom. There's someone in this room that you have a family member. Maybe it's a cousin. And God is saying this Easter morning, I'm challenging you. Are you willing to rise up to the level to say, I accept the challenge, Jesus. I'm gonna preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And it's not all about what you say, it's how you treat someone. It's how you pray for them. And God this morning is trying to challenge you. He wants to build his kingdom, but it's gonna be through you. It's not through the pastor praying for that person. It's you being real. And there's some of you this morning Maybe you're like me, and I've asked for the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, I don't know how many times, thousands of times. But maybe this morning there's some of you that you're willing to say, you know what? I have different thoughts and emotions about it, but I'm willing to put my feet across the line. I'm willing to say, yeah, I want the Holy Spirit. You're allowed to be all three. <laughs> but I'm gonna be bold. Just as Jesus was bold on Easter morning, I'm gonna be bold this Easter. I'm gonna encourage you to be bold. If you feel the Holy, it could be one of you, it could be all of you. If you feel the Holy Spirit is being very specific to you this morning, there's something specific. It's not just in general that we all need to change, but there's something specific. Your attitude, what you said, the way you treated someone, an addiction, Something needs to change. The Holy Spirit has put his finger on your heart this morning. Would you be willing to be bold to say, that's me, and raise your hand? I need to change. Amen. Thank you for being bold. I'm gonna pray for us to have our hands raised. God, I just pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue the good work that you started this morning. Where I'm wrong, where I need to change, Holy Spirit, I need your help. I can't change in my own strength. So I ask, would you apply the blood of Jesus Christ over the doorposts of my life? I claim to come under Jesus' authority. And I declare I am forgiven. I am made whole and righteous because Jesus says it is finished. Because Jesus says I belong to him because he bought me with a price. And I choose to walk in obedience from this day forward in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to ask the next group. You feel a specific calling on your life. Before Sunday morning, you already knew the Holy Spirit was stirring something, and this was just confirmation this morning. God is calling you out. He's got a specific challenge for you, and you know it. It's not like you're just trying to fish for it. You've got a challenge, and you're willing this morning to say, I accept. All in. All my chips on the table. I'm going in. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I'm going all in on the challenge. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. 
God, I thank you for those that were bold enough to raise their hand. Lord, you said that if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that you are Lord, we will be saved. God, I believe that everyone that's just raised their hands, Lord God, they're saved not just to be free from sin, they're saved from their old path. They have a new path to walk on. They have a new goal, a new purpose. God, they are rising up to take that challenge. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower them, strengthen them. God, what they are willing to commit to right now, God, the enemy would not be able to snatch away tomorrow, but their roots would go down deep into the soil of your marvelous love and they would become bold and courageous to walk this out in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thirdly, if you would like Jesus to breathe on you, the Holy Spirit, and you would like to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can do miracles, so that you can lay hands on the sick and they would recover, that you can cast out demons, you can do things that are strange beyond normal, and you're saying, yes, I want the strange and abnormal, I want all that the Holy Spirit has for you, would you raise your hand if that's you? Praise God, praise God. God, I thank you that this Sunday morning, God, is not just a day of salvation, it's the full gospel that Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. We welcome you into this temple, into my temple. Holy Spirit, would you fill me afresh and anew that I'm not just forgiven, that I am full of the gospel. I am filled with the fullness of God, that I lack no good thing, that Jesus, everything that you did, I accept the challenge to do it just like you, with the same authority, with the same boldness. Holy Spirit, would you give me a fresh conviction? Holy Spirit, would you baptize me with fire that I'd be passionate, that I'd not be ho-hum, that I'd not be just self-absorbed thinking about myself, that I'd have a passion for your gospel, I'd have a passion for your kingdom to see it explode everywhere around me. That when you said that word, that I'd be endued with powers, that Greek word, dynamo. Holy Spirit, would you cause a dynamite explosion in my life? Cause me to be different from this day forward, that I'm no longer just thinking about myself, but my head is in the kingdom. I've got the mind of Christ, that I've got the fruit of the Spirit coming out of me. It's not me, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not me trying harder to be gentle and patient and kind. It's just you, Holy Spirit, exuding out of me. It's because I'm filled with all the fullness of the Spirit that others get to taste and see how good you are inside of me. So God, I thank you for this morning. We give you praise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. 